And I'm Kyle Thompson. And I'm Tina Sicka. And you're listening to General Intellect Unit. And as you can probably tell, we're actually joined by a guest today. Um, we're joined by Tina Sicka, um, and she's going to talk to us about geoengineering and um, an intersectional analysis thereof. Um, so, yeah, I guess why don't you introduce yourself to the brain crowd? <laughs> yeah, thanks. Um, I'm Tina Sicka. I'm a lecturer at Newcastle University uh, in the UK. Uh, Media Culture Heritage is sort of the, the school that I'm in, and I've been there for about a year. Uh, sort of looking at the study of geoengineering, the study of technology uh, through the lens of gender and neoliberalism and some work on class and race, uh, different kinds of technology. So right now, yeah, looking at geoengineering. It's all stuff that we love, <laughs> especially in yes. that's a critique of neoliberalism. <laughs> <laughs> So I was wondering if you could first just sort of give us an overview of what geoengineering is. Okay, sure. Uh, geoengineering is, is basically uh, a set of techniques that are meant to deal with climate change and they're large scale uh, transformational interventions into the earth to do so. Uh, so there's solar radiation management, and uh, carbon removal, um, that are two strategies. Um, one of which is to find technologies that would uh, deflect sunlight back into space so as to not um, have the greenhouse gas effect. And the other is to find technologies that would capture the carbon in some way and store it. Um, but it's it's essentially referring to a set of, of technologies that um, are sort of you know trying to trying to deal with with climate change uh, in a way that would do a, you know would actually intervene into the way that the Earth works um, right. on a fundamental level. Right, and so. Uh... How much have these uh, technologies been deployed as of the current moment? Um, well, not on any kind of large scale. Um, there's a long history to different kinds of weather modification um, that have been used to kind of seed clouds so you get more uh, rain, for example, that was, uh, that's been done. Um, most recently for the Beijing games that they, right. they to, to make sure that they didn't have rain during that time. Um, but otherwise it's been mostly small scale. So there's been some, um, you know, iron seeding, which is putting iron in the oceans so that it will increase uh, phytoplankton and algae blooms that would suck up carbon and it would sink to the, the ocean. There's an unsanctioned uh, case of that. Um, so there's been a little bit of that. Um, mm -hmm. But other, other than that, uh, you know, some carbon capture, you know, trying to, trying to do that. Uh, some of the more mild work has been done looking at afforestation, so doing more planting of trees. Um, right. But, but yeah. Right. And so the... Um... 
the kind of issue here, really, and we're 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 going to be reading. Uh, we have been reading from um, a a uh, a chapter that's going to appear in a book uh, as of yet untitled that'll appear sometime in twenty nineteen. A chapter that you've written on this kind of like intersectional analysis of geoengineering, um, and the kind of like the key the key issue here is that like this stuff hasn't been deployed yet or in in huge scales, but like it has the potential to be, especially with this environmental crisis bearing down on us. But also that like there's generally not much of a analysis of like who's going to be affected by this and like what are the kind of negative outcomes that could happen and um, especially like how does that all sort of intersect with um, uh, various sort of categories of oppression um, that that exist is that is that yeah. the case? Yeah, I was really. I mean, one of the things when when you read the science is that um, when they talk about unintended side effects, they'll just mention them, you know, talk about uh, how, you know, certain countries might be affected, but they don't kind of do that granular analysis of what does this actually mean for people. And so, you know, being able to to point out some of the negative consequences is fine, but to think seriously about how individual people are going to be impacted by these large-scale technologies is, is something I really wanted to do. And, and I think that's a, a, a fault of a lot of science um, that is engaging with large technologies that are interventionist, is that we don't get a sense of who is affected um, on, on a sort of personal level. Yeah, that's uh, certainly something we have seen uh, in some of the episodes that we've done in the past uh, with various sort of like planning and technological measures. Um, so it was it was certainly a point of interest for me uh, that you were concerned with this kind of individual level and how to analyze it. Yeah, it was it was hard because I I was thinking of you know how do you how do you do this um, and I was thinking about how science can be challenged in a way to do this and, and thinking about, you know, whether it's going through scenarios like I did or doing different kinds of storytelling. Um, but the larger critique of, of science is something that I'm really interested in, in a way that doesn't, that allows you to kind of challenge the science and to think about the values that are built into the technologies and science as well but not to fall into this, you know, skepticism, you know, not to say that, you know, the, mm -hmm. the climate change is real or, or, or anything like that, that you can't have scientific fact, but you can also have values built into the science. Right, right. And uh, yeah, that's absolutely a huge challenge that we're facing at the moment. Very interested to hear more about your approach. So you have taken this intersectional uh, approach to the problem. Um, and uh, one of the angles that you use within that is uh, gender approach and uh, various approaches to feminism. Uh, so do you want to talk about how you sort of integrated those into your analysis of, of science and technology? Yeah. Um, my approach to feminism, when, when I was looking at different feminist approaches to science, um, you know, it's, it's coming up a little um, unimpressed with just the way that a lot of the feminist approaches either um, fell into a very essentialized notion of gender. Mm -hmm. uh, so it would, you know, do a criticism of the technologies as 
being, um, you know, either, either they, they would critique them on a liberal perspective, you know, not enough women voices in the science, or they would, you know, critique it on a kind of, that you know, you had to throw all of the technology out and start from scratch, or there would be a, a, a very uh, essentializing um, use of women and femininity and, uh, you know, talking about how the innate values could be built into the technology. And so I kind of came right. to feminist empiricism more as a method to look at um, look at at technologies in a way that was empirical, but also that integrated traditional feminist values, not feminine values, but feminist values. So feminist values around uh, the practice of science that brought in the ethical, um, moral uh, issues of justice that I thought were really important in the science and to critique the technology based on that and to really think about how, you know, um, women's lives are conditioned, structured in very specific ways. And if we're going to say that these technologies are going to impact women, do a lot more than that, you know, how, in what ways, based on what existing oppressions and and gender relations and relations to race and class as well. Right. So I guess uh, I'm kind of wondering here uh, what the the sort of core approach of this this uh, feminist empiricism is uh, to looking like at a problem like uh, geoengineering. Um, well, what I would say for a, a feminist empiricist approach is to really look at integrating feminist virtues into the practice of science. Um, the first one, the first virtue being that it is about empirical adequacy, that feminist science or a, a feminist approach to science can embrace um, empirical adequacy and sort of, you know, just like the Thomas Kuhn kind of values of science, mm -hmm. but that other values would be human interests and human needs, heterogeneous science, a very explicit acknowledgement of values that are built in science that, that decisions are made when you do things like you, you know, put parameters and choose parameters for climate science. So really integrating a sense of justice and ethics into the practice of science as, as good science not as, you know, anything sort of more than that, but that it just happens to align with feminist principles. So would it be would it be kind of fair to say that like the the current way that sort of like system of knowledge and science is structured is uh, is currently very sort of masculine and sort of instrumentalist and um you know like about the domination of nature and so on and that like this is partially about like like re considering all those kind of like perspectives and like what they're actually built on and kind of introducing a you know standpoints then perspectives that are like not of that kind of um that kind of tradition but are you know integrating more of the like feminist perspective or just like you know general human perspectives is that is that the case i'm picking up right yeah yeah, and, and doing a kind of unearthing of what are the values and principles and assumptions that the science is is currently built on, and are those values racist, misogynistic, mm. colonial, you know, neocolonial, um, 
are they based on relations of power and assumptions that are continuing to oppress certain populations? Um, that I think a lot of the science does, and you know, you can even sort of look at at uh, you know some medical science as well, and criticisms around um, you know the way that medicines have been tested and and mm -hmm. uh, so you know all those kinds of it, it's kind of doing a excavation of the values and principles behind the science to really think about you know is this the best way to conduct it um, and i think for geoengineering when we do that we we see that the way the science is being conducted is not in the interest of human needs it's not um in tune with what we think is is uh, you know conception of justice or of you know different perspectives being brought in, right? And so, you know, you mentioned this medical uh, analogy, and it was it was something that sort of leapt to mind immediately uh, for me when I read uh, some of your your work. Um, and I guess, like, is there something coming from this perspective that would suggest a like fundamentally different approach to climate change change problems than the approach that is instrumentalized in uh, geoengineering? Um, I think looking at the way the problem is articulated. So one of the one of the things I always find with the way that climate change presents the science is that you always look and see global trends over local ones. And so there are these binaries that are built into, into the science, you know, that it, um, that you've got developed countries, developing countries, or the global north and global south, and you've got um, assumptions around the, like I said, the local and the, and the global. And you, you read a lot in geoengineering uh, research about how a specific geoengineering technique is going to lower global temperature levels. Mm -hmm. And so if you read something that says that, okay, you know, the modeling suggests that it will lower temperatures by 0.5 degrees. That sounds good, but then when you think about, okay, in what regions, how is that going to work with, you know, current sort of weather just in, in, on a general level? You know, if, if, if it changes slightly, is this going to impact a country's food supply? Um, right. And so that, that dichotomy, I think, is one way in which, um, you know, you can really start to, to think about how how that preference for the global actually shapes the research. Right. And I mean, the sort of uh, medical analogy is, is really interesting here. So like, do you think it's fair to say that this is kind of a, a like a symptomatic approach to treatment of uh, this problem of, of uh, climate change that we, we just look at this, the symptom of, of a certain number of degrees increase uh, in uh, global uh, temperatures and look for a isolated uh, approach to address that particular problem? Uh, or is the, the problem elsewhere? Um, I think there is that, that kind of reductionism that happens, um, that you can't, for some reason, it seems like we can't see um, the entire picture. It's where we're 
singling out um, even greenhouse gases, like CO2 is all we talk about. Um, but, you know, what about methane? There are a whole host of other, other factors and other, other problems that are interacting with uh, weather and, and climactic systems that I think that we're not uh, sort of asking the right questions sometimes. Yeah, um, my, uh, my father was a agriculture scientist and uh, definitely this issue of methane uh, was something that it took him a long time to kind of come around on and, and appreciate the extent to which his practice as a scientist was embedded in, um, you know, the, the cattle industry in a way that was producing major, uh, you know, climate change effects. Um, so I can see the relevance of your research. <laughs> uh, so, uh, to continue then, um, I guess, uh, one standpoint or sorry, one approach to, uh, gender that you do look at, uh, in your, your book chapter here, uh, is, uh, ecofeminism. Um, so on the face of it, it sounds like, you know, this is kind of exactly what we might want to look at because it's dealing with ecological issues and it's also feminist. Uh, but what was uh, sort of the, the primary issue you had there with uh, the ecofeminist approach and why did you feel, feel like it needed to be uh, modified? Yeah, so, so ecofeminism, I mean, there's different kinds of, of ecofeminism, um, but, but generally it's this idea that um, oppression of uh, the earth and oppression of women can be examined in tandem, um, that they sort mm -hmm. of coexist um, or they co they've co-evolved together. And um, what a lot of ecofeminists do, and, and the problem I have is that it ends up essentializing women and into it, it kind of reasserts you know women as nurturing the earth is nurturing yeah. that that very yeah that very essentialized vision of of women and, and sort of uh that they're innately one way or another that they're more attuned to relations and to yeah so so i just found that that perspective falls short of that essentializing because I think that just sort of reinforces uh, gender norms in, in, in a lot of ways. So even though it sounds really nice when it comes to uh, the earth and, and environmental issues, if you sort of take an ecofeminist perspective and then you transport it into different uh, aspects or, or different parts of life, it, it becomes just a, you know, perpetuating gender stereotypes. Right, right. And I guess as, as Marxists, we uh, would certainly endorse your anti-essentialism. Uh, <laughs> yes, very much so. <laughs> um, all right. So uh, why don't we uh, carry on then to talk about some of the other dimensions of your, your intersectional analysis here? Um, so uh, one of the other dimensions you, you talk about uh, in your chapter is, uh, is race. So uh, how do you see race being involved in the discussion of geoengineering? Um, for race, I think that, you know, when we're talking about an intersectional approach to different sites of oppression and, and how, actually, one of the most interesting sort of articles and, and 
readings in general that I've been, been focusing on is around environmental racism um, and how, you know, just in terms of everything down to, you know, where garbage dumps are situated, that you've got these decisions in urban planning and in, you know, waste and disposal through a history of, of segregation and, you know, slavery going back, particularly in the States, you've got these sites of uh, parts of, of the country that, that are undergoing, you know, water crises and, um, you know, very, it, it is a form of environmental racism, trying to mm-hmm. think about how I could import that model into examining how what the consequences of geoengineering would look like. Because I bet you where those tests are going to happen are going to be in racialized communities. Um, right. And so that's just something that I no one was really talking about. And, and I think it's just going to feed into an existing unequal system. Yeah, and I absolutely appreciated how um, you were talking here about really the... Um, the way that race is, is materially embedded in our lived environment and how decisions about where uh, pollution or uh, resource use uh, is allocated um, is is based on race and it actually has a lived effect. So I thought that was a really useful remedy to sort of like uh, overly liberal uh, approaches to race. Um, and you, you had a specific example uh, in this chapter involving the, the Coast Salish, if I remember correctly. Is, is that right? Um, the geoengineering test? Yes, yes. Yeah. That was the Haida, in Haida Gwaii. Yeah, so that was just uh, Old Masset in, in northern BC off Haida Gwaii. So you had this billionaire kind of entrepreneur, uh, Russ George, who uh, had the, uh, a company um, that went to the community there. I mean, he's a proponent of geoengineering iron fertilization. So, you know, putting iron in the ocean, increased algae blooms, captures, and phytoplankton uh, captures carbon, sinks to the bottom. Um, And uh, went there and basically sold it as a way to um, enhance uh, salmon. And mm-hmm. so um, there was the concern there that, that salmon stocks were quite low. And, you know, if you increase phytoplankton, then, then you know, you're going to have more um, fish, was what he, he argued. Um, right. And there's, there's some modeling to, to suggest that. And so they, they were quite, um, you know, happy to, to go along with that. And, and um what happened was that they did this test and it was, it's an unsanctioned test because there are laws and, you know, the laws of the sea that say that you can't dump, you know, in the ocean. And uh, the convention on biological diversity said that this was unacceptable and, you know, created a a rule saying you couldn't do it, but it, but it was this, you know, it was this, this company and you can see this from the direction of this neoliberal kind of, you know, structure of, of how this all unfolded, where they went up and, and said that, you know, we're going to help you with these salmon stocks, and we're also going to make it so that maybe you can sell some of the carbon offsets and make some money. And mm-hmm. it really was just an undercover, 
you know, to, to do this geoengineering and Russ George has tried to do it off the Galapagos as well, which is just insane. Mm -hmm. And, um, yeah. And, and, uh, there was a, you know, there was some sort of criminal investigation that didn't really go anywhere, but, um, that's where, you know, it's going to be in these communities that are marginalized, um, where all of this is going to happen. Um, yeah. Yeah. So, like, I mean, there's a bit of a theme developing here that, like, I mean, as futuristic and crazy as geoengineering might seem, like, when we when we want to think about its effects, like, we actually have prior art, right? Like, on how environmental sort of uh, impacts and like the the, the the impacts of like syn- the, you know the impact of like synthetic stuff on the environments has already affected um, marginalized communities people in precarious positions uh, and so on like it's um which makes the the absence of um, any of these considerations in the current science kind of ver- more glaring like we already know how this stuff tends to affect people of color right like it's in, oh. it's already in our history it's kind of weird that it's still omitted. Yeah, I, I found that really strange that that it was just not discussed at all, um, mm. and and also also the dynamics of class that that weren't discussed either because that's where the intersectionality comes in because it's going to be in uh, racialized communities that are also suffering from other forms of deprivation where you know these tests are going to be undertaken. We can see this in you know where we're you know, um, even, even medications tested, um, or weapons tested on groups of, of marginalized people. So it's that, that danger that, you know, it's going to be these populations that are going to suffer the side effects. Right. Um, and I mean, the, the class power dynamics here are obviously very significant, right? Because, um, you you find like really at the margins of society these spaces in which uh, you know uh, wealthy uh, capitalists uh, are able to engage in sort of pet projects of experimentation um, because this is at the margins and because they can bring the power that they have within the center of society as a uh, capital um, to bear. Mm-hmm. And it's um, Richard Branson and Bill Gates, you know, yep. have, have put money into this. And um, it's, it's, it's quite ironic that that's even some of the people that are supporting geoengineering now are ones that, you know, five seconds ago were climate change deniers. And so you have, <laughs> Heartland Institute and American mm-hmm. Enterprise Institute that have sort of like skipped a step geoengineering. Yeah. <laughs> just to geoengineering. Well, it's almost um, as if they're utterly spineless morons who don't actually have a position. Yeah. They just glom onto <laughs> anything that's presented to them. Yeah, and it just seems like, a, you know, that, that kind of economic bubble effect of the technology you know, let's just funnel all our money into these, it's, you know, the, the very beginnings of that techno bubble, um, that, you know, you've got these companies that are all, you know, getting together to create these technologies. I mean, some of which are more benign, like forestation, but even afforestation, if, you know, you have to plant the trees somewhere. So whose land are you going to be using? And is it agricultural land? And so it's, 
you know, these, these questions come up either way, but the funding of it, I think is a, is a real problem because you've got, um, it's not like publicly funded science anymore. It's these ad hoc groups that are doing a lot of the research and funded by billionaires. Mm, yeah. Right. And that's sort of the general direction that, uh, you might say, um, this kind of, uh, greenfield science uh, seems to be taking, uh, or at least, uh, you know, when it comes to big pressing social issues, there's usually some capitalist foundation behind uh, whatever new direction it's going. Yeah. And, and um, looking at what the American Enterprise Institute and, and, and um, Heritage and uh, um, you know, these, these think tanks are that are behind it. And and now you're starting to get, you know, a lot of the more respected organizations, even Royal Society that have, I mean, they're very tepid support. It's sort of, you know, go very carefully. Even a lot of the scientists that are behind doing more research say that it's a terrible idea that we have to try kind of, you know, that, that they, right. Um, they're not like pro let's, let's forget about, you know, emissions targets and, 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 uh, Paris and, and all of that, but they, um, even, I, I still have a problem even if it's, you know, saying that we need it, but it's going to be terrible. I mean, it's still, uh, it's still moral hazard. It poses that moral hazard. We're not going to engage in any other mitigation. Right. And uh, so can you, you kind of speak to that point that this is, um, you know, in a sense, a dangerous approach because uh, using geoengineering may sort of crowd out other approaches to dealing with climate change? Yeah, because um, and, and that's that uh, the moral hazard argument that, uh, you know, if if everyone thinks that, oh, the technology is going to save us and that these these uh, interventionist techniques are going to keep us below a certain threshold of of increased uh, temperature that um, we're not going to engage in any uh, changes to our consumption habits or we're not going to put uh, money into alternative energy technologies or to different ways of sort of living sustainably that we're just going to put all our faith in the technology that's going to save us. It's, you know, techno-utopianism mixed with moral hazard uh, that, you know, can really, can really stop any alternatives. And that's where that feminist heterogeneous approach to science comes in, because what this does, it cuts off so many other ideas, options. Um, and I think that you do get a sense of technological inertia also, that once you start going down a certain path, you get that path dependency where you just keep on, you know, so much money has gone into it, it, it becomes um, almost self-fulfilling. Well, it's a sunk cost, right? Like we, we built the huge sky cannon, like we can't just leave it sitting there. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, it feels to me as if like this kind of hazard is already kind of evident in... Um, some of the kind of discourse that like a, a lot of people don't really speak out loud with, but you kind of ca catch them whispering in hushed tones that um, the presumption that um, the, the, the effects of climate change will first be felt like elsewhere, you know, in the global south and so on. And that if we have to do this 
geoengineering stuff, then all the bad effects of that will also be felt, felt in the global south. And that when, when they say that, like, we must do this thing in order to secure our survival, the we and the our there are actually kind of northern Europe and the United States. You know, that it's like baked into the assumptions that this is actually going to be very fucking bad for everyone else and that the the the, the base sort of position of being able to claw back some kind of a living will be exclusive to people who happen to be in uh, already privileged positions. And it feels like it's already kind of on us, you know? Yeah, and that's the whole thing of, you know, the precedence, uh, you know, that that it's there, that this this happens with other technologies and techniques and, you know, happens with... Um, you know, I, I, I'm not quite sure that the realization is is really that. You know, I don't know if it's a sense of just sort of trying to forget it, but um, it is absolutely going to be felt by the global south first. Um, and what I think is really interesting is, you know, when that happens, and then you have climate refuge, then you know the walls go up. Where it's mm -hmm. like we're fine for our missions to all go over there and you know, sort of tinkering that we do, but when it comes to dealing with what we started in the first place, any any you know drawbacks of the technology, then we're not willing to sort of deal with uh, helping people. Well, I think it's uh, you know recently this perspective has been pretty succinctly expressed in a perhaps somewhat veiled way by a. Prince William when he said there's too many people in the world, right? <laughs> this is, <laughs> seems to be a pretty ominous statement uh, <laughs> on his part. Yeah, it, it just, um, I, I find that, you know, some of the, the ways in which the problem is articulated by different, you know, people in places of privilege is just a massive problem where you know it it uh it puts a lot of the responsibility and the blame on uh other populations uh as well um you know and i think uh that overpopulation is one of those those arguments that i go back to and i sort of shake my head a little bit just because issues around um consumption and resources and production are really significant, and those aren't considered at all in in any of the analyses. Yeah, it's like with the with the, with the neo Malthusians, it's always there's too much of them. It's never there's too much mm -hmm. of us, and it's always that they are taking too much resources. Which it's never that we are taking too much resources, and like it's that kind of falls entirely on its face when you consider that like the kind of. Uh, American slash European lifestyle is what 20 to 50 times more resource intensive than all the people they think are too populous, you know? Um, well, and also, uh, you know, this was an astoundingly ignorant statement made right after the prince had yet another child. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, it, it never, this, this kind of stuff never starts at home, right? Like it's always, yeah, uh, I, you know. I, I think also that's another way in which some of the, the values that underpin science and the way it's presented manifest themselves because it is always this, um, you know, we, we, we look at the statistics that say that, you know, the emissions in this country are X amount, but we don't look at it over a period of 100 years 
or we mm -hmm. don't look at it in terms of per capita. Um, mm -hmm. You know, so so when an argument is made is that, you know, China's, you know, emitting more than the United States, it's that, well, wait a second, you know, over what period of time per capita, you know, all of these factors aren't considered because we have these built-in preferences for certain kinds of statistics and knowledge um, that suit a particular mm -hmm. ideology, which, you know, makes it very value-laden. Yeah, and like needless, like it, it shouldn't even need to be said, but I think I'm going to say it out loud. This kind of shit has no place on the left. Like uh, a socialist program can't include this kind of Malthusian bullshit. Yeah. All right. So I think this is a good place to sort of uh, segue into your case study here um, that you you close out this chapter with um, that tries to bring together these different uh, perspectives into uh, one kind of analysis. Um, so this uh, was um, a case study you did about uh, solar radiation management. Is that correct? Yes. Yeah, it was uh, so, um, yeah, stratospheric sulfate um, geoengineering. So the one where you would put particulates into the atmosphere, into the stratosphere, sorry, to mimic the cooling effects of, of volcanoes. So usually after there's a volcanic eruption, there's a, a, a decrease in temperature um, over a wide area. And um, this would be putting sulfate particulates to mimic that cooling effect. Right. And so uh, what kind of risks or problems does this sort of approach uh, present? Because when you put it that way, it sounds like, oh, okay, well, you know, it's not a greenhouse gas and it's, uh, it's uh, going to reduce temperature. So where's the problem? Yeah, the, the two big problems are the effects it would have on the ozone. Um, so, so that was a, a major, actually, I'll, I'll give three, the effects that it would have on the ozone, um, where modeling and, and past, one of the interesting things about um, the sulfate approach is that we can actually look at what happened after volcanic eruptions. Like Mount Pinatubo in the in the Philippines, um, there is a lot of uh, research that's been done afterwards on what the effects were. And one was that it would have a, a negative effect on on the ozone layer, and um, the other one was that it would disrupt um, monsoons. So mm. would have um, you know more a, a sort of delays or, or a decrease in intensity of monsoons, which you know, people in South Asia really depend on for their agriculture. Um, and uh, so that was a, another major one. The, uh, the last one was termination effects, where they found that once you were doing that, um, and if there was a decrease in temperature, if you stopped abruptly, temperatures would increase really, really quickly. Mm -hmm. um, and so, you know, all of those were seen as, you know, quite dangerous side effects, even if you got an overall decrease in temperature. Um, and so I thought that was a really good example. Uh, you know, you had enough evidence of negative side effects from actual volcanic eruptions. 
Um, and there's been extensive modeling that's been done to show what some of the side effects can be. So I sort of decided that that, that would be a, a good approach, um, you know, in terms of the technique that I would feature in the case study. Right. So then in order to uh, proceed with the case study, you actually uh, try to localize these effects in a particular sort of um, example. Uh, so uh, can you talk about the example that you came up with and uh, how it these sort of broad level um, scientific concerns factor into it? Yeah, um, I was really trying to to find a way because it's it's well and good to say that you should have an intersectional approach to scientific practice, but it's, you know how does that work? So I was thinking about using a case study or doing some storytelling or you know what what approach novel approach could I put, bring into um, this this analysis and you know another kind of feminist principle principle that Helen Lagino has is is novelty. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I thought I would take the case study approach and I would use um, the the stratospheric sulfate geoengineering. And um, I would try to represent gender, race, and class within a very localized, personalized story of what would this actually what would this actually do to someone um, in the global south who is experiencing the negative side effects of um, geoengineering. And so I took this you know, woman who uh, is from a lower caste, and so some of the caste and race dynamics could be captured, who is poor, who lives in an agricultural province of Uttar Pradesh in India, um, whose the monsoon season's been disrupted because of this um, sulfate geoengineering. And, you know, what, what would this mean for this particular person, given all of the um, aspects of, of, um, oppression and of deprivation that they face, uh, already compounded by geoengineering. So what, you know, what would that sort of look like? Um, and so I sort of went through all of the experiences of, of gender that that, uh, individual would have this, this, you know, fictitious woman, um, kind of, you know, talked a, a little bit about, access to resources and um, just overall gender discrimination and power dynamics within the family and and the care work that would have to be done, and then issues of caste and uh, issues of of poverty as well and, you know, danger of violence and um, all of these sort of things to really say that these are actually people that are going to experience these um, consequences um, to give a human more of a human face to the science, right? And this is a, this is a, a sort of like compounding problems just getting kind of recursively worse, right? That like this person is like because they're they're poor, they they're already exposed to disproportionately to the kind of uh, effects of this the, these sorts of outcomes. Um, because they're they're a woman, they also like have a disproportionate burden of care to the other members of the family. Um, they're in total, like, more likely to then end up having to kind of go, like, migrate to kind of escape this kind of catastrophe, which opens them up to more and more, um, more and more dangers. And it's like, 
yeah, there's when when it is seen through this kind of lens, we see that not, not only does this have like potentially disastrous impacts on people, but like particularly on people who are already vulnerable, and then the disaster makes them even more vulnerable in this kind of recursive horror. You know, um, yeah, I really liked this analysis. Yeah, it was a you know sort of running through it in these different ways um, because you can also you know bring in the the environmental racism into it. Um, you can touch on issues of for caste. I thought it was really sort of interesting because there are elements mm-hmm. of caste too, where you know um, caste. The one of the dynamics is that your your work, what what you do for a living, is is basically supposed to be what you are born with. Um, you know, in the cities, it, it's not as much of an issue, but you know, in Uttar Pradesh, it's still quite pronounced, and so it's not like you can get up, move your family and get a, a job in a different place. Because mm-hmm. sometimes, it, you know, your last name is going to give away that you're from a certain caste and, and this is the work that you're supposed to be doing. So it's really giving up a sense of, of identity of place and, um, you know, just putting deprivation on top of deprivation um, mm. that, uh, you know, is really a problem. Yeah, and I kind of like, I think there was one particular part in this, um, in your writing here, where it's like, not only are they the most likely to be displaced, but they're also the least likely to receive aid. You know, like that, it's it's not only that we're going to have like the worst time of it in the first place, but that like, they'll be at the bottom of the list for receiving any kind of uh, rehousing or um, or assistance. Yeah, and then the rehousing, you know, looking at the way that disasters are dealt with, and, you know, then you're going to bring in the whole, you know, the humanitarian industrial complex, um, mm-hmm. you know, there, there are pro- problems with that as well. And, um, you know, the politicization of aid and how aid can sort of wax and wane with where the, you know, the world's attention is, um, mm-hmm. that, uh, all of this, uh, you know, is, is something that is just, it seems like the science is entirely divorced from it. Right. And I guess maybe like a possible response to this would be, oh, well, yeah, I mean, of course, this person would suffer more from the effects, but they're going to suffer more from the effects of climate change no matter what. So, you know, therefore, uh, we might as well go ahead with geoengineering. So what, what would you say to a to a response like that? <laughs> <laughs> I think that, you know, if you map out the, the, the potential for things to go very badly, I mean, one of the things I always say with, with solar uh, radiation management with this sulfate approach is the, you can't say that, oh, if it goes really badly, we'll just stop because you have that termination problem where mm-hmm. you're going to have the temperature just increase. That's one of the things that's a problem with geoengineering is that by doing small scale tests, you're actually doing it, right? You, right. It, you can't sort of, you know, localize it or anything else. And so it's kind of, you know, that it's something that you would engage in, in a way that could not be sheltered. Um, And when you take it in its totality, where, you know, you've got the private interests, you've got the rogue tests, you've got the unintended consequences, um, you know, you've got the moral hazard. I mean, it just, you know, layer upon layer of reasons why this is just not a good idea. Um, Mm -hmm. 
there's a scientist, Alan Robach, who has this article that it's like 20 reasons why we should not do geoengineering. And mm -hmm. it's, it was 20 just a couple of years ago. I don't know how much it's up to now. <laughs> <laughs> we'll get a link to that for the show notes uh, for the listeners. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah but, but um, you know, it's just a terrible idea, I think. Um, but it's, it's that techno-utopianism that, you know, technology will find a way so that we don't have to change our consumption habits or or change the way that we organize our economy and i think that that's just not people don't want to do that but i think as well that like even like this kind of analysis and this kind of like bringing these kind of perspectives in is absolutely crucial because even if we do absolutely need to like and i'm very cautious of this kind of like the sense of urgency that's often invoked with um, when it comes to geoengineering that like we must act we must do something immediately and it's like kind of like writing a blank check to kind of do any kind of damage they want but if it does turn out that this is actually a, a crucial component of a like well-reasoned and well sort of specked out like total system for recovering the earth like in including uh, cutting emissions and uh, down and restructuring how we live and how we relate to the environment and to the world around us. Even if geoengineering is a part of that, then all of this stuff must be considered. This has to be front and center of our thinking as to what are what are the negative effects. Because like the, the, the current status quo for this stuff is kind of appalling in that like none of this is taken into account at all in the, in the literature. Yeah, and I mean, there, there are benign elements to geoengineering, like one, one approach is, you know, painting all the roofs white, um, mm -hmm. you know, um, that, that I think, uh, you know, it's something that's a little less extreme or uh, another one's like putting, putting mirrors in space, which is like a weird one that it seems almost like a Reagan star Wars. You know, <laughs> kind of thing. Yeah. Um, but well, if we can get the defense industry involved, then uh, <laughs> oh, yeah. this one's got legs. Um. Yeah, and, 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 and that the military applications of this, you know, if you are a military being to control the, t the thermostat of the planet is something that is, you know, going to be something they're going to want to do. Yeah, absolutely. And that's been discussed by the Pentagon for decades now, right? One one other interesting element that I didn't get to highlight in the in the um, chapter as much is just when we're looking at um, one of the side effects of solar radiation management would be of the sulfate approach would be that um, the skies wouldn't be blue, um, mm. and and I think that that you know looking at it from an issue of like an embodied aesthetic relationship that we have to blue skies is you know another thing that that we don't we don't think about um yeah just in terms of what um these changes are going to mean for you know the nature of our of like our literature of of our embodied sense of our relationship to worlds that um that the issue of embodiment and subjectivity around Things like feeling the sun on your face, that, that is something that, uh, you know, is also very important. Not to mention what it would do to the food supply and agriculture mm. or anything else. Right. And, I mean, it brings us just that much closer to the uh, 
Blade Runner Hell Future we <laughs> keep talking about on this show. Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, all right. Well, uh, thank you very much for uh, coming on the show and talking about your work. Um, well, thank you for having me. Oh, yes, absolutely. Is there uh, anywhere that uh, you would like people to uh, follow you or any other things you would like them to investigate going forward? Yeah, I'm on, uh, I'm on Twitter at TSICA. Um, mostly, you know, I do, I do post some stuff about, uh, I tweet a bit about uh, geoengineering when I, when I come across something. Um, but uh, this this book chapter will will come out um, in 2019, and I'll have a book coming out on with Springer Press, where um, I focus specifically on feminist um, empiricism and looking at feminist approaches to science and looking at geoengineering as a study um, in particular. And that will come out at the end of the year. I just handed in the revisions, so. Cool. Congratulations. Um, <laughs> yeah, and we'll we'll tweet about that as well when when those those books all come out. Um, yeah, fantastic. Um, yeah, thanks again for coming along with us on this one. Um, and yeah, thanks also to the listeners for for listening. Um, I guess uh, if the listeners do want to keep up with us, they can find us on Twitter at GIUnitPod. We're on Facebook as well as General Intellect Unit. Uh, we're on all the podcast apps as well. So, uh, you know, subscribe, uh, listen to more episodes. Um, and if you're, if you've been enjoying the show, uh, maybe think about heading on over to patreon.com slash general intellect unit and maybe throwing us a couple of bucks per month, um, really helps with, um, you know, keeping, keeping ourselves alive, <laughs> you know, and fed. Um, yes. yeah, fantastic. I think that's, that's about it for this episode. Um, thanks again to Tina for, coming on um and hopefully we may even have you back on at some point in the future to talk about uh, some yeah. more interesting stuff um yeah i guess that's it um i guess we'll see you all again in two weeks with the next episode thanks for listening goodbye bye